you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, it's a double play from Oliver's trip to Santa Fe. First up, soprano Alexandra Lobianco goes inside the huddle to talk about what you should do while waiting for your dramatic voice to ripen and all the good vibrations we feel when we sing. And then in our new free throw segment, so new Norm is still practicing it, Composer Huang Ro fires back at critics who say his new opera, M. Butterfly, doesn't sound, quote, Chinese enough. Ugh. Plus, in the two-minute drill, Placido Domingo breaks his silence on the yoga sex cult scandal and says he's very sad and feels used. Aw, poor baby. <laughs> Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. You click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit that plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. And without further ado, he's back. His lungs are working again. It's <laughs> Oliver Camacho. Yay. I mean, I'm laughing now because it's over, but it was a little scary the first two days there, not being able to sleep because you can't quite catch your breath. So uh, I don't recommend COVID to anybody, but uh, it did give me a chance to watch all of the Cincinnati Open, one of the last hard court tournaments before the U.S. Open. And I normally catch like maybe the final, maybe the semifinals, but I watched all of it. And uh, boy, oh boy, all of my heroes just stumbling. Uh, Serena Williams made her return <laughs> after her uh, announced retirement. Um, she lost in her opening match. And Rafael Nadal, who was expected to go to the final, if not win, also lost in his opening match. Uh, thankfully, if you can put a silver lining on it, he was beaten by the eventual champion, uh, the Croatian um, Borna Choric, uh, who has a winning record over Nadal. Uh, and also beat along the way my boyfriend, Felix Oje Oliasim, uh, Cameron Nori, <laughs> and my, what do you say, F. Mary Kill. Uh, my, <laughs> my, my, my F in that formula, uh, Stefanos Tsitsipas, uh, who just, it was so weird because like he was doing so well in the first set. And then when he lost the first set and he got broken early in the second set, he just sort of gave up. And it was just weird to see somebody who's like so proud with a big chip on his shoulder, just come back and go, all right, well, I'm done. Oh. Oliver, I am obsessed with the idea of doing, uh, fuck Mary kill with um, <gasps> like opera singers from like the thirties. Oh, that's okay. maybe, maybe coming soon to <laughs> a an <new> episode <laughs> near you, Ashley Hardgrave, <laughs> any respiratory illnesses in your neck of the woods? You know, it's funny that you mentioned that I have <laughs> been like on the verge of getting sick and I've been panicedly taking COVID tests every day for like four days, still negative knock on, whatever wood is closest to me. So I don't really know. I think my body's fighting something. It may be fighting the ick that is the Cleveland Browns fan base. Mm, um, understandable. Because, man, man, somebody's mama didn't raise them right. Okay, here's the nutshell. So <laughs> Deshaun Watson he sucks, but uh, he he's 
been accused of sexual misconduct by like 24 plus women. He's settled some of them. He's not settled some others. And so finally, the NFL gave him a wrist slap and they suspended him for 11 games, 11 whole games. And uh, so Jimmy Halson, the owner, who also sucks, was more supportive than he should have been for someone who is a sexual predator. And the fan base is really... They're, they're putting up a lot of like signs at games that are like, bring back Deshaun, you know, F those hoes and like children <laughs> are holding these signs. And so it just it makes me like weep for the future. I see these kids who are like doing voter registration drives and I'm like, the kids are all right. And then I see these people holding these signs supporting a sexual predator. And I'm like, maybe the kids are less OK than I thought. And the point is, I'm worried. Hmm. <laughs> Very understandable. Well, hopefully uh, Cleveland will get its act together. Hopefully your respiratory illness or whatever it is, is just Cleveland's related, uh, which, you know, I mean, as a uh, as someone who uh, has been to Ohio before, I wish them all the best. That's all I can say. Ooh, there, there goes our Ohio audience. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So for the next two weeks, we're going to be, uh, you know, we're in summer hours and we will take our little break over Labor Day weekend. Um, but we are bringing this season to a very exciting conclusion, uh, leaning on some of the content I collected in Santa Fe along with my COVID. Uh, we're going to start <laughs> with an interview. I did not know this artist. Uh, and even though she is local to Chicago, I have never heard, never spoken to her until I met her in Santa Fe. And honestly, I didn't know where this conversation was going to go. I had like this interview prepared where we were going to talk about, um, you know, being a dramatic soprano and young artist programs and singing in Santa Fe. And we do, you can see, we sort of start the conversation in that territory, but you can hear like a third of the way through the interview. I'm like, oh, you're actually like a very smart musician and you're like a complete artist and you think about a lot of things besides just being a soprano. And whenever I meet people like that, I get so excited because of the possibility as a person who has stage directed before, as somebody who's worked on an admin team before and knows, uh, you know, the marketing side of things, the production side of things uh, and the fundraising side of things. Drink? To have an, yeah. To have an artist like <laughs> Alexander Lobianco who really uh, comes to her divaness in a comprehensive way. Uh, it's very refreshing. So I present to you my interview with the Alice of the Falstaff production, which was heard at Santa Fe with an amazing Quinn Kelsey in the title role and a star turn by the young friend of the show, Elena Villalon as Nanetta. Uh, but Alexander Lubianco sang Alice. Her, her only the only comic role uh, in her resume. Um, and um, before we hear that interview, uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of Alexandra singing um, Aida from Seattle Opera.
It is my first singing season with Santa Fe. I was here in 2016. Um, I had the pleasure of covering Pat Reset for her um, debut as Minnie in Fanchula de West. I had just done it with Des Moines Metro Opera the year before, and they brought me in to be her cover. And then I ended up adding a little, you know, little ditty on top of that, which was covering Donanna as well (laughs) that summer. So I was a little schizophrenic as per usual. (laughs) (laughs) Two really easy. (laughs) Totally, totally. Very similar. Well, that sort of brings up the topic of like the repertoire that you sing, um, Tosca, mm-hmm. uh, Isolde, uh, now I know Mini. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> these are not comic roles. <laughs> no. <laughs> they can have comic moments. Yeah. But uh, in Chicago, we have heard you as Chrysothemis in Electra. You were uh, covering Elsa Vandenheimer. I was. And coming up soon... Uh, you will be singing The Mother in Hansel and Gretel. That's coming this season. Very excited. And that um, will be also Sir Andrew coming back. Oh, nice. It'll be wonderful to have him back in the pit. Um, but you also, while you were uh, in Chicago, uh, covered for Atosca in 2015. 15. Mm-hmm. And you covered Christine Gerke. I did. <laughs> for the ring cycle, which never completed. I know. Um, I'm sad. So these are um, pretty major assignments. <laughs> and... <laughs> The, the disappointing thing, not for you, but for us, is that we don't have a lot of you, like, in your full flight, you know? It's true. Um, we have these cover things, and you don't have, like, major recording contract, because really, who does anymore, except for gorgeous tenors who, whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's also hard to record yeah. as a dramatic soprano. Yeah. I mean, it takes a very special haul. It takes, I mean, it takes somebody who really understands how to capture the, the full essence of the instrument. Yes. And we were supposed to have had you, uh, your Tosca, yeah. uh, but then COVID happened. Yes. So I don't know, do you feel like COVID sort of coincided with all of these assignments that you were going to, it's going to really make your career? Honestly, I feel like COVID provided an opportunity that I didn't expect. Yes, I lost a ton of work. I was supposed to be here in Santa Fe. I was supposed to debut as the foreign princess in Rusalka. I was also covering Isolde, supposed to be covering Isolde during that time period. And then I had some other really big opportunities like Lyric. Um, and I had just made my debut at the Met in um, Rosenkavalier, just singing Mariana de Leitmetzer. And, and I'm back singing that again this year. But it's it was a mixed bag for me. Yes, I lost a ton of work and I lost what could have seemed like a bunch of propulsion in my career. However, during the pandemic, I was very lucky to actually keep working quite a bit. Uh, I did a concert for Portland Opera. That was the Senta. The... No, the Senta was, Senta was actually, um, that was Baltimore Concert Opera. Oh, okay. And that was a couple, that was actually the day after I finished jumping in for Chrysothemis, I, I flew to Baltimore and the next, on that Monday... <laughs> I was starting rehearsals for Zenta. (laughs) So my brain was still like, ah, what am I doing? (laughs) From Rosaltomais. And two new roles back to back truly slammed. And my brain was a bit much. But, uh, but, Baltimore was doing a virtual concert, so I sang Ariadne for that. And I, and then Seattle called me to jump in for a couple things. And the first thing was a Cavalleria. They were doing, um, just a semi-stage, like the, the big hits from Cavalleria Rusticana. And, for a video? Um, for video okay. and for distribution. And I went out there and I sang. Christina Scheffelman didn't know me at that point in time. And we became very fast friends and really adored each other. And from that point on, I went back to Seattle three times 
in that period during during the pandemic i ended up doing the cavalleria i came back and i sang um we did a whole film version of tosca that was released and did very very well in seattle in the pacific northwest uh and then it i also was able i went back and sang my first brunhilde with them to debut the next season in concert with eric owens and brian jovanovich and angela mead singing her first siglinda and then me, little old me. <laughs> who who am I to be standing on the stage with all these incredible people? And um, and Ludovic Morlo was conducting with, with the Seattle Symphony, and it was extraordinary. So while yes, the propulsion kind of slowed down, it also picked up in a different way. Yeah. So well, maybe I'm, it's like the pivot from you being the girl that they call when they need somebody to being the girl that's on the. On yeah. the playbill to start with. You That's, know? Yeah, I, I, your lips to the, to the universe's ears. <laughs> <laughs> so Chicago, um, yeah. you had the Tosca assignment, you did the Isolde, but you, we talked about you covering uh, Chrysothemis for Elsa Vandenheber, uh, but really now you've become an Electra. I'm moving into that world, yeah. Uh, I can still sing Chrysothemis and I love it because there's still beauty in my voice. And I love the lyricism of Persephone's. Um, but I will say that Electra feels more like me, where I am now. And I will, I will admit my age, because no one thinks I am as old as I actually am. I'm 44 years old. I'm allowed to be singing this repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> but um, do you feel like Electra is, I don't want to say voice wrecker, because, you know, I you have good technique, it's clear. But do you have any concern about the demands of that role, the orchestration, the weird seas that come out of nowhere. You know? Not really. Be- because of that that wonderful word you, word you just said, technique. Uh-huh. I spent the majority of my 20s with my mentor working on technique. And I, I sadly didn't get to do as many uh, young artist programs as, I, as, as many young singers get to. I kind of was kind of sheltered and kept in a little box. But I also was a, a stagehand and a stage manager, and I, I ran lights, and I directed, and I did theater, and I did musical theater, and I did anything and everything I could outside of the opera world to learn what it takes to be on that stage. So when I walked on that stage, I understood how to find my light. What am I looking for? How do I respect the people that are behind the table? How do I talk to them and say thank you for the number, the immeasurable hours that they spend outside of our rehearsal time when we're going, okay, six hours and I'm done, bye. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but granted, we spend tons of time outside of the, of the theater as well. But the number of hours just spent crafting these extraordinary plots for the lights and the sets. And then our stage, our, our, our stage managers who spend hours cultivating paperwork after paperwork after mm. paperwork. It's extraordinary. So my understanding of the whole industry changed because I've done the job. Yeah, you know, I had no idea our conversation was going to go this direction. But, you know, as somebody who has produced and somebody who's stage managed and somebody who does marketing, you know, I've done I've tried all the hats, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I recognize a diva and I know how to deal with a diva. Mm -hmm. It's totally fine. And I because I also sing. I know what they need to feel more um, safe, yeah. even if they're behaving very badly. Yes. It usually has to do with some kind of insecurity. Totally. But here you are, somebody who has a very solid technique. 
who you say you know how to find your light. I mean, just like even somebody saying that, it's like, oh, okay, they know. They know. <laughs> <laughs> Look, my first job was outdoor drama in North yeah. Carolina. 50 shows a summer, six nights a week out in the outdoors, getting swallowing bugs and, and learning how to exhale the smoke from the, mm. from the fight call to learn to get a fresh breath. Yeah. I, I learned. Yeah. But I, I mean, I wonder if because you are so skilled and because you have such a low diva factor, <laughs> if that makes people not be intimidated by you or not be, you know, not think, okay, well, she's the one that we've got to get, you know, it's like, there's something about the diva persona that almost makes them like attractive. It's like, you know, she's clearly a diva. So, you know, she's probably sings really well too, you know? You know, there, I think there's a little bit of that perhaps, but if that's the reason I'm not getting a job, then is that the job I want? Yeah. That's the question I always have because I love talking to people. I love doing what I do. I'm, I love telling stories. I don't really consider myself an opera singer as much as I do a storyteller who heals. Hmm. Because when I, I wanted to be a music therapist and I wanted to be an orchestral clarinet, clarinet player. That was my first love. Um, and what we do on that stage, because there is no amplification, it's so it can be so transcendent of the body of the of the audience the way and, we resonate yes. physically resonate when we're <clears throat> in the hall with the person yes. can't get this over video you cannot <laughs> you can't get this over the video and video is very important it's a very important part of our industry however my hope is that we can really encourage people from the video to come in and experience the actual sensation of sound wave hitting mm. them because it's it's transformative what we do is literally molecular reorganization. We know from science that when a sound wave hits an object, it can change the molecular structure. That's, that's been proven scientifically. So what we do as opera singers literally change the molecular structure of our audience. I hope that they come in one way and leave another. And if only one person comes, says, oh, I felt something I didn't know I needed, then I've done my job. I mean, I once again, I did not think our conversation was going to go in this direction, but you are really preaching to the choir. Um, I mean, I have been lucky in my life to be in rehearsals where magic happened. Maybe it didn't happen on the stage, but it happened in the rehearsal room. Yes. And um, I'm changed from it, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you have a, a instrument that uh, makes change happen very aggressively. <laughs> Thank you. That, that's very humbling. It's truly humbling for me. I, uh, you know, but after being told for so many years that I really wasn't very good at this and I probably would never have a career in it, uh, to, to have fought so hard and so long to get to where I am, it's very humbling to hear that. I mean, you're going to make me cry because like, <laughs> your voice is really just so beautiful and so impressive. I think people hear your voice are like, where have you been, you know? <laughs> You're going to make me cry. <laughs> Thank you. Well, at least we'll get to hear you sing Mother in um, in Hansel and Gretel in Chicago, but I would have loved to have heard your Tosca. We got Michelle Bradley, which was... Uh, Stunning. Yeah. Stunning. I'm actually covering her in the spring. For? The Aida, the Met. Oh, wow. <laughs> Once again, the girl that's... <laughs> the girl you call. You know, I'm okay with being the backup. I'm good. I, I, have, I have no fear. <laughs> It seems I was a competitive horseback rider when I was younger. I know what it means to get on something and just go. So, hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about just uh, the patience and now that you're a teacher, um, how you 
you know, mentor your, your singers to just understand that things take time. It, it really does. The gift that my mentor, her name is Carol Kirkpatrick, gave me was the gift of understanding that each one of us is an individual and it takes the time it takes. The time it takes as a, as a singer to process through, this is what I was doing as a young singer, this is what I need to be doing, and how can I make it my default process? It takes time. It usually takes about two years just to get to the default. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> as, it, as I've been teaching for over 15 years. Um, my, I, my mentor, when I started studying with her, I would travel back and forth to, from North Carolina at the time to New York, and I would arrive on a Monday and leave on a Friday. I would have six lessons in three days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I wouldn't leave her studio. I would sit in on everyone else's lessons and listen and sit at her side, and she would ask me, what do you hear? What, what are you understanding? And I learned to teach as well as to sing. And I had the honor of working with her mentor before he passed, who was Herbert Grossman, uh, Maestro Herbert Grossman, who happened to be one of Toscanini's assistants. And so I, he was the first person to push me from being a technical singer to be an interpretive singer, to understand what it meant to go past your understanding of beautiful line to utilizing text to interpret and how that functions within technique and how it can fall, make your technique fall apart for a second, make you scared. And then your voice cracks and things happen organically that are because of the text, not because you're trying to do something interesting. And then, I just—I mean, as you're talking, I just want—I want all the conductors and all the stage directors to hear this interview because you are like the dream colleague, because you are a great musician and like you already said, you played clarinet and you have like a—you are musical and you are a good musician, but you also are looking at the extra musical things, which I think we're all as people who produce work, we're always trying to get the artist to see, okay, yes, you did that beautifully. Yes, you sound great, but look, there's more. Yes, <laughs> there's, there's more. more. Yeah. There, there's, that, there's that little bit of, it can be a little aggressive. It can be mm. a little ugly, but it doesn't have to fall out of alignment. Mm. There can be moments of it falling out of alignment, which, which also helps with verismo. Mm. I mean, the, and, but there's a difference of utilizing a verismo crack versus mm. a verdi. You mm. know, and when verdi wants something to crack, he gives you, he shows you by the interval mm. and it gives you a certain consonant to utilize. Mm. And it's fascinating um puccini i also with with the robati and puccini it's just it's extraordinary to see the push and the pull but it's because of what's being written and to to be able to use that text to to bring out something that you're going into in the orchestra and to be listening to the colors you're pulling from the orchestra into your voice and okay is that is that the english horn or is it the bassoon what's the color that i'm listening for oh wait it's actually it's actually french horn i'm dumb you know <laughs> you're not <laughs> no no but, but I, I, that moment of oh, what am i listening to oh yeah. that's uh that's this instrument and yeah. being able to pull from the orchestra why why and ask the question why why did Puccini Verdi uh, Mascagni whoever Mozart utilize that instrument at that moment what is the emotional context that I'm pulling from the orchestra into my sound to continue the line of of the intention of the text because they're all all those beautiful instruments are so evocative of different emotions and <laughs> 
the thing is, there's two things there. One, you have to listen as a singer. And that's very hard for people who are so focused on their own instrument, remembering their words. I yeah. mean, it's a lot of oh, it's a lot. yeah. Uh remembering their staging, you yeah. know. Um, but then to also listen, um, I think is uh is not everybody knows how to do that. And then also to be a good enough musician to understand what does the French horn mean? Yeah. What does the clarinet mean here? And then even to think about historical aspects of these things, mm-hmm. you know, what does the oboe mean? What does the trumpet mean? I mean, uh, I'm a Baroque person yes. and a bel canto person. And I think the, one of the reasons why I love that repertoire is because there we don't have these Strauss orchestras where you have like this gigantic palette to choose yeah. from. You have like these limited instruments. Mm-hmm. And I know what the affect those instruments are going for. You know, even Mozart can be pretty complex, but it's still within a certain range. But you start getting to composers like Strauss or yes. Wagner, and it's just so overwhelming. Like you sing Mahler beautifully, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. It's so dense. And I'm not a good enough musician to hear what I need to be doing to make it musical. Wow. And I think there are people who just have voices who like they can sing it and it sounds impressive, but I'm still bored. <laughs> But it really does take somebody like like Michelle DeYoung, right. who is such an incredible musician. When I when I hear her sing Mahler, I'm like, oh my god, this is so gorgeous, you know. It's there is something intrinsic about the connection as an artist that everyone brings to the table because each one of each one of our souls is made up of composites of of universe. I mean, matter is neither created nor destroyed. So if we think about it that way, we're just reinterpreting a universal aspect and sound i mean i i'm going to go completely woo woo on you <laughs> and say that i i think about creation stories everything from the big bang to the christian idea of god spoke and and there's always sound involved and sound has been here since the beginning of time and if what i do as an authentic interpreter of of, of the universe is that i'm just allowing the eternal to pass through me. I'm I if I'm in that space and I'm open enough, that's my job. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm just thinking about you as as a musician, as as complete as you are, and as as complex as you are. And I wonder if you understand the quote unquote dumb singer. And like I'm I'm, I'm doing air quotes <laughs> here because no singer is dumb because we do so much work. So I'm not calling anybody dumb, but you know, there are these people who just have voices and people hear them. It's like, that's just God given, you know, mm-hmm. natural. And they just jobs, 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 Absolutely. jobs, you know, and it's a gift. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I think those, those singers are extraordinary. I wish I was one. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely not. I had to be trained. I had to be rebuilt. I had issues with my tongue because I was a, I, I had braces throughout middle school and high school. So my tongue had been trained to sit far, far back in my mouth. So everyone thought I was a mezzo. Uh, there was a lot of technical problems in me. I came with a, a tight jaw from playing clarinet for so many years. I came with so many other issues that I confused people because I had this dark, rich voice and oh, 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 mm-hmm. it was stuck down in my throat. Granted, I sing in my throat now, but it's not stuck in my throat mm-hmm. anymore. But because of that, my it wasn't until I met my mentor in, I met her in 2003 mm-hmm. at the very first classical singer convention. She was just selling her book, but there was something about her and she saw me. She saw my soul. That's the best way I can say it. 
And I connected with her and she scared me and also enthralled me. Um, and my first lesson with her, I did one exercise and she looked at me and said, well, number one, you're using about a third of your voice. Number two, you're a soprano. And I went, no, (laughs) (laughs) no, 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 no. And we fought about it for the next couple of years. Um, it wasn't until I had my first coaching, my first coach (laughs) caught was Nico Castell. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) no pressure. Rest in peace. No pressure. Yeah. And I went in saying, he's, I'm, I'm going to prove her wrong. I'm going to prove that I'm a dramatic mezzo. I'm not a dramatic soprano. I was 26. Oh. I was 26 <laughs> years old. <laughs> 26 years old. And I walk into a coaching with, with Nico and I sing Cavalleria on purpose because yeah. it could go either way. And he listened to me sing and he, I'll, I'll never forget it. He, he listened and he, he looked at me and said, my dear, you understand there are no 26-year-old dramatic sopranos, but you are very, very close. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked after that, and we worked through Cavalleria, and we worked through Tosca. Um, and so I, he was my first coach on Tosca for Visitarte. Mm. And then I said, we de- ended, we finished, and he said, well, what are you doing now? I said, well, I'm singing in the chorus at Opera Carolina, and I'm doing this. And he said, no, this is the voice you stand in front. Mm. And I, was, I will never forget that. Can you talk a little bit more about Nico Castell? Because we just lost him. I know. And I just would love for the audience to hear what it was like to work with him. Like, but yes, he recognized you. That's great. <laughs> but what was the work actually like? Oh my God. He was so demanding. If you couldn't get it right, right away, he was, he would get on you even more. I only had the pleasure of working with him a few times, but he, he, if you understood language and you caught on quickly, he would, you would go very quickly through things. If you didn't, he would be more and more demanding. And if, if he wasn't happy with your preparation, he'd tell you to get out of the studio. Wow. Yeah. But did he stop and do like history of a word type of moments? Not you know? really. Okay. Because you look at his books, it's like, oh my God. Of course, so they're, so, they're yeah. so incredibly rich. Yeah. But he, he didn't really need to because we weren't working on that aspect. He expected you to come in knowing. Okay. He just kind of expected, if you're coming to work with him, you know what you're doing. Okay. I guess so. Yeah. Not everybody's <laughs> like, uh, I, what is Nico Castell's rate? <laughs> it was very special. It was very, very special to have him as my, my very first coach. It's very heady now because at the time I was green as all get out. I don't come from a family of musicians. Yeah. I don't come from a family of people that, you know, understood this industry. I was encouraged to make sure to get an education degree, something that I could make sure to fall back on. And they eventually said, we'll be disappointed if you don't try. Hmm. So I tried and here I am. You said a minute ago that you were 26. (laughs) And is Elena V alone even 26 yet? She's she's like 19 or something. (laughs) She's 24. She's amazing. And I'm I'm honored that she's on the same roster that I am. And I'm I'm honored to call her a roster mate. She was stunning mm-hmm. i know that verity doesn't in this opera you don't get that many moments to be stunning but she took it and she boy did she, she gets, take it she gets that moment and runs with it as she yeah. should because it's exquisite yeah the line that she spins is just yeah and the risk she takes you know yes i love it just gorgeous it's sublime it's truly sublime singing so um in a few minutes we have left um <laughs> i want to keep it positive but i do want to hear since you have since you have so much to teach and you have worked so hard mm. to develop your craft, craft, what do you think? Let's set aside Santa Fe because we know Santa Fe is an amazing company and a lot of their singers get to come back as principal artists. Yes. And so they're doing it right. But what do you think about 
the Young Artist Program and what people who are trying to break into this career should accept from them and what they shouldn't accept from them. Oh, that's so hard. Yeah. I mean... And you don't have to name names. <laughs> no, it's, it's, just a, it's just a very complex question yeah. because there are so many in, incredibly talented singers that come, I think it goes back to less the young artist programs and more the education that we're being taught in college. Mm -hmm. I don't think singers are being given enough in college. I think, I don't think the demands are high enough on them. Um, what would you like to see improved? What areas? I would love, mm, okay, so, 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 soapbox <laughs> moment, soapbox moment. Um, so, I'm sorry, I'm going to say this and then yeah. I will never get a job at a university ever. <laughs> Or you can build your own program. I, I only had an undergraduate degree anyway, okay. so I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm one of those dumb singers. <laughs> yes, we know. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think the first year of a student's life as a, as an undergraduate should just be learning things like the Vakai or the Lamperti technique or the Merkezi, because those were accompanied every Every uh, instrumentalist comes with etudes and things of that nature before they ever get to repertoire. And you have to learn to play lyrically. You have to learn to play your dynamics. All of the things before you actually access your, your repertoire, you've done etudes upon etudes upon etudes. Then you get to excerpts and then you get to play. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I agree with you. Yeah. Nobody knows how to make music, by the way. No. Like, nobody knows a phrase. Nobody no. knows. <laughs> but if you go to the go to this beautiful Lamperti, Marchese, uh, Cancone, all those wonderful exercise books. They're not just exercise books. They're etudes. And they are accompanied. They are supposed to be accompanied. Mm -hmm. And if we can learn to do those things in the slow manner, mm -hmm. it is very... It's extraordinarily... Uh, what's the word I'm Instructive? Like... <laughs> What's the word I'm looking for? I'm looking for something that it, it, it's tedious. That's the word I'm okay, looking tedious. for. It's tedious work. Okay. And it will, it would weed out some, some people to, and I, I'm not trying to say that no one should follow their passion, but there are a lot of us in the industry that start saying, I love singing. This is amazing. And we come into it and we, and I'm going to say the inappropriate thing and say that singers are easy money for schools. No, that's not easy. That's the truth. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I find it hard to, that we don't have a better way of really cultivating artists, not just singers. Yeah. So are there, I mean, I would love to hear more. Um, <laughs> so many thoughts. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> About, but because I actually agree with you. I think that if we had a process of weeding out the people who are just singing because they... I don't, for lack of a better word, don't have anything else to do, but like want to be on stage and like have a pretty instrument. Those people usually fall off in their twenties anyway. Once they realize that there's work, and it that, is work. It is yeah. a job. Yeah, and then when they are like the star of their small town, then they go to you know a big yeah. big name conservatory and they realize that they're just middle of the pack or bottom of the pack, right. you know. And then they get discouraged that way, or they do their first job and then they realize, oh man, like. I have to rehearse. I have to practice. I need to memorize. And they realize this is a lot of work. And I did what for $500? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I remember going to my first job was with the chorus for Upper Carolina. And I was living in Boone, North Carolina. 
going to finish my, my degree at Appalachian, I was, I would drive two hours down from Boone to go to rehearsal for maybe an hour and a half, sometimes two hours, maybe three to drive two hours back for maybe $200 for a production. But it was worth it to me because I wanted to do that. And it was, it was really in that first job where I, I remember sitting out in the house. It was cold, sassy tree. I'll never forget it. Watching the principal's work going, that's what I want to do. That's it. That's what I want. My colleagues in the chorus were back and hanging out in the green room and having a good time. But I was out in the house just glued to what the principals were doing. That's when I think it really hit me how much I wanted to do what I do. Well, I hope a young singer who is in the audience for one of your shows can hear that story <laughs> and know that you, you know, schlepped it for 200 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you were inspired. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And it's not about the money. It's about the passion. It's about how I do my job. It's about getting to tell these incredible stories. Just a little bit more of Alexandra Lobianco, this time singing Vise d'Arte, also with Seattle Opera. And uh, we're going to have just a little bonus segment here. I actually did a very professional interview, no swears, uh, with Huang Ro <laughs> uh, in order to contextualize his um, new opera and Butterfly uh, for a future radio broadcast. And... I got the feeling that he had a couple more things to say that we're probably not going to make it on the broadcast. And so uh, I gave him a chance to respond to those people who wonder why Huang Ro isn't composing music for the Pipa and the Erhu in his uh, Chinese, in quotation marks, opera and butterfly. I use the Chinese opera gun in the, uh, in the Chinese opera sections. So that to me, you know, again, when chi- you use the Chinese opera what? Opera gang. Gang? It sounds like oh. dang. Oh, a gong. okay. You know? okay so, yeah. so to me, the question of why didn't you any ch- use any Chinese instruments? That's so shallow and so ignorant. Chinese instruments could come in so many forms, so many ways. Performance practice, and in this case, the opera gang is a very important Chinese instrument. Mm-hmm. Even it doesn't sounds like as the same pitch the western yeah. instrument has but it's a very crucial instrument in chinese opera so you know so in that sense uh, i did use it for dramatic reason so you will hear this da 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 and yeah. that itself immediately brought you into this chinese operatic world it doesn't need a a, a, a pipa or a, a like pipa <laughs> or a to play a tune you know what i'm saying it's yeah it, Okay, yeah. I don't mean to and make you mad. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I just when I see that, it just shows me how much how, work we have to do. How so. much work we need to do, and also what the world we live in today. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe 
20 years ago, I would would not have any power to say anything. Yeah. No one cares about what my response will be. But nowadays, people actually care and want to ask, yeah. want to know. Uh, also, with social media, we could deliver our thoughts in so many ways. So, which is all good things. Yeah. Well, I mean, as a person of color, I can tell you this. Mm-hmm. It's because the gatekeepers, yeah. they need to feel comfortable. And they need to be able to say, okay, this is something other. And when I hear the Erhu or the Pipa, right. I can feel comfortable. Oh, that's Chinese music. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It is. Uh, how should I say? But again, that is just on the surface. Right? Yeah. But ignorance is one thing, but getting it wrong and use use the you know just their own shallow knowledge to criticize, that to me is is more severe. Like if you don't really know too much of the culture, at least just just to you know talk or write about what you know, right? But instead of getting it wrong and truly make that as a criticism, uh, I just felt you know uh, just very strange to me. Uh, almost like you know you, you you see people from another culture, you expect them to must must dance or sing in certain way just because they are from that culture and because that is the only way you feel they belong or that's the only way you could uh shows that that culture um yeah that's i'm sorry that's not that's not uh, what you know diversity is truly about just a little bit of composer huang ro on being a chinese composer in 2022 and trying to write an opera just like everybody else. Um, next week, we're going to hear a little bit of my conversation with Isabel Leonard Ooh. on singing the role of Carabino and Dorabella and other things. Uh, but the main attraction for next week is going to be my uh, feature-length interview with Speedo, with Ryan Speedo yeah. Green, the, the cover boy for the 2022-23 Met season. That's coming up next week. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Argentinian authorities have linked Placido Domingo with a cult-like group that allegedly engaged in sex trafficking. According to prosecutors, Buenos Aires Yoga School forced a number of women to engage in prostitution. Placido didn't commit a crime, nor is he part of the organization, but rather he was a consumer of prostitution, said a law enforcement official. In response, Spanish political party Mas Madrid has called on all Madrid institutions to remove Domingo's name from the many awards the tenor has accumulated over his lifetime. The board president of the Metropolitan Opera is facing questions over relics which the Cambodian government claim have been looted from one of the country's sacred sites. The art newspaper claims the Khmer relics are now allegedly in the home of Sloan Lineman Barnett, whose mother Freda is president of the Met Board. The family has not been accused of wrongdoing and has not yet responded to media questions. The chief conductor of Moscow's Novaya Opera Theater has resigned. Valentin Yoryupin is Ukrainian and has been vocal in his opposition to the Russian-Ukrainian war. He wrote in his res- resignation letter, quote, As you probably already know, some time ago I was forced to resign for very good personal reasons. To say I'm sorry is to say nothing. 
For me, this is a big and absolutely forced loss. A transgender employee is suing Cleveland Orchestra for discrimination. Rem Ransky claims that the orchestra's third-party healthcare administrator discriminated against her when it refused to cover a surgery because she's a trans woman. The healthcare firm claimed that her surgery was, quote, not medically necessary. An investigation found that the orchestra had a clause in its insurance policy that excluded, quote, any treatment leading to or in connection with transsexual surgery. And this is why we revisit old antiquated laws. You hear that, Congress? In trade news, Pacific Opera Victoria's conductor Timothy Vernon will step down next year from his position as artistic director. Vernon was a co-founder of the company and will remain involved with the Pacific Opera until his current five-year contract ends in June. Exit stage right. Wolene Gunn, mezzo-soprano and artistic director of Brava Opera, has died after complications following surgery. As a performer, Gunn graduated from the Marilla program, going on to perform roles and in works including Aida, Falstaff, Peter Grimes, The Medium, and The Consul, with companies in San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle. She served on the faculty of the San Francisco Conservatory of Music as director of the Conservatory Opera Program for 30 years. And on this day, August 22nd, in 1741, Handel started work on an oratorio that will forever be our answer in frustration when you're trying to explain what is Baroque to people who don't know <laughs> the Messiah. And Handel finished it in 24 days. In 1827, it was the birth of Walt's composer and brother to more famous Strausses, Joseph Strauss. In 1831, it was the birth of English tenor W.H. Cummings, no relation to our friend Matt, Cummings set Hark the Herald Angels Sing to music from a cantata by Mendelssohn, which itself became a popular Christmas hymn. You've heard of it. In 1862, French composer Claude Debussy was born. In 1878, Canadian tenor Edward Johnson was born. He sang 12 seasons at the Met, totaling 163 performances and 23 works. In 1909, Sergius Coggin, the composer and pianist and also the editor of many international editions, which you should stop using, was born. In 1928, <laughs> Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, friend of Weston Williams, was born, the German composer. And in 1944, tenor Peter Hoffmann, he was German, was born. 1968 saw the first performance of Hamilton Burt Whistle's Punch and Judy at the Edinburgh Festival. And in 2002, it was the premiere of Loris Chechnavarian's Rostam and Sorab, an opera that premiered in Tehran. And that is your two-minute drill.
acknowledging Debussy's birthday, just a little bit of a girl combing her hair in a girl, a way that only a French girl can. Mes longs cheveux descendants, Melisande's hair combing song uh, from Pelias et Melisande. That was Sabine de Vieille uh, from her album Mirage, which is recorded with the period band Les Siècles, led by Francois Xavier Roth. Really nothing at all like the uh, the hair combing song in Disney's Tangled. Uh, I just wanted to point out that apparently it's Christmas in August because we've got handle starting work on uh, mm-hmm. Messiah. We've got uh, the uh, uh, the Cummings uh, 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 Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And we've got Carl uh, Heinz Stockhausen, which is a Christmas present for me. Yeah, so that's clear. Yeah. 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 It's been pretty great. So um, I basically I just said that to avoid talking about the the big story that everyone is talking about uh, this week, the Plaza I mean, Domingo. <laughs> well, I I for one, my feed has been just absolutely full of it because it feels like it's like a, a you remember Weekly World News? It feels like one of those stories, <laughs> uh, like a op- opera singer caught in sex cult scandal, you know. Except it's apparently real. Uh, this is, uh, so I should say this is all allegedly like, uh, and, and even the investigators seem to think that, uh, Placido Domingo didn't do anything illegal, uh, this time. Um, although who knows by the time this episode comes out, if that, if that, uh, stays the same way. Um, but apparently there's this quote unquote yoga school, um, that was operating in Argentina, which was actually a, a front for sex trafficking, uh, sexual exploitation of its members, and there were a few uh, classical music people associated with it, including uh, the uh, I believe the the link to Domingo was a pianist. Oh, I'm completely blanking on her name. Um, starts with an M. Um, but uh, but basically, in the course of this investigation, investigators found a couple of wiretapped calls. Um, between Domingo and this pianist and uh, uh, some other people at the organization um, talking in sort of suspicious ways about meeting for dinner and then going separately so they're not seen together and all of these sorts of things. Um, and uh, I, I believe Placido Domingo actually responded as responded uh, uh, not too long ago uh, saying that uh, he thought that you know he seemed he was betrayed. He felt like the, they were these were just musicians, um, you know, which clearly doesn't seem to be the case. Like he seems to have been, you know, as the comment says, a, a was a consumer of prostitution. Um, again, we don't know exactly what's going on. Not all the information is public yet, um, but I think this is a really interesting twist, uh, considering the. Domingo's reputation since, you know, the last uh, year or two um, after all of the credible accusations of sexual harassment. Um, And I'm sure Ashley has at least one rant for us (laughs) on the subject. (laughs) So I'll hand it to you. It's not even a rant. It's just a point that makes this a little bit more sticky and a little bit more oily, although oil would unstick the stick. My metaphor's off the rails. No, the point is this, is that, you know, when we hear this and like Plasto being connected to, you know, being a consumer of prostitution, we want to put an American 
you know, set of standards and right, and right. morals and legalize on it. But see, here's the kicker. Prostitution is legal under federal law in Argentina. Yeah. So it's not that there was actual prostitution happening. It's that it's alleged that the people that were doing said prostitution were doing it against their will because they were trying to be a part of this community. Exactly. So that's the place where things get a little bit sticky, you know, but officially like, you know, sex work is work, even though it may not yet be legal under American laws, it is legal in Argentina. But mm. Placido was gross to begin with. So like this just it doesn't uh, it doesn't I, it, add it, anything good to uh, his current reputation to the point where I, I thought it was really interesting that this uh, this political party, Mas Madrid, I don't really know how influential they are or what the rest of their platform is or what their motivations are. But I think this is the first time I've I've seen something from a European institution kind of going in and denouncing Domingo um, uh, because what we've seen, I think, over the past, ever since the allegations came out against Domingo, he's been basically banned from performing in the U.S. He has not had a, a opportunity to perform. No one will perform with him. But his career has continued on just fine in South America and Europe. So I'm almost wondering if this is maybe one step too far where maybe finally over in the um, less puritanical, as they would call us over here, uh, Europe, they might start being like, well, maybe maybe a pattern of behavior is a pattern of behavior. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> I would love to see some consequences for his actions. I, I Again, I don't think, I we don't know yet to what extent Domingo knew about the true uh, intentions and uh, machinations of this uh, sex cult, as um, the uh, all the headlines are calling it. Um, but certainly, uh, it doesn't help his reputation any here. I mean, with the rate things have been popping out in terms of like news and updates on this story, let's give it a couple of days. By the time this podcast drops, we're probably going to know <laughs> exactly. more. Yeah, and well, we don't know which way it's going to go. So best of luck to us all. We have yeah. already heard from Domingo himself, who gave a non-answer yeah. to um, a, um, I guess it's like The View in Mexico. Uh, right now, Domingo is singing a concert in Monterrey, and he was kind of like, interviewed like guerrilla style and he basically said you know that he feels used and he's sad and he thought he was working with musicians and like whatever he played dumb and he played like he has he is the victim here so yeah i, I mean who i mean like i said we don't know yet there's not like npr and a lot of other news sources like you know uh shared this story but we haven't heard much from the credible sources since the story first came out. And there's been a lot of speculation. Uh, so yeah, so we can't really say what happened, but the fact that Domingo was um, a customer of prostitution, I'm not going to judge, you know, it, it feels very on brand for him, you know, <laughs> uh, but I don't judge that that exists. Now, if these women were, uh, you know, forced into prostitution, if they're sex trafficked, that's something else and um, right yeah it's very uh it's very nexium uh it's very yeah. keith ranieri <laughs> like i'm you know i'm getting those vibes yeah well uh from uh, one uncomfortable situation to the next uh what is going on ashley with this cambodian 
relic kerfuffle <laughs> with oh, the there's, there's just so many things. Okay, so I'm going to hit some of the high points. I'm, I'm going to leave stuff out because this baby takes some turns. Uh, and you can actually read more about this in the two polar opposites of uh, publications called The Post. Uh, New York and Washington <laughs> have both done reporting on this. So the nutshell is there was an issue of Architectural Digest that came out last year uh, that was Sloan Lindemann Barnett's home in San Francisco. Uh, and they were they were featuring it because this famous architect, Peter Marino, uh, Peter something, uh, Peter Marino, that's it. So Peter Marino had like done all this incredible work and in remodeling on their home. So they took this photo and it was released in Architectural Digest. Peter Marino also featured a photo on his website and somebody doing some investigation realized, huh, these photos are the same except for these pieces of artwork that aren't showing up in the Architectural Digest photo, but do show up in the photo that's on the architect's website. Oh, wild. So, a, Yeah. So a little bit of further digging Basically, they were like, yeah, we airbrushed, we photoshopped these things out. And the things they photoshopped out were these Cambodian relics that were allegedly stolen from the Khmer people. And they actually, you know, they said, yes, the magazine published the image without these relics because of an unresolved publication right around select artworks, which is a very fancy way to say some people think these are stolen and we don't want to talk about it. Uh, and the thing <laughs> is, these these artifacts, they came into the Lindemann collection from the Met board president's husband. He's the one that got them. He is now since passed on. Uh, but they ended up being passed down to Sloan, who's the daughter of the Met board president. They claim they got them fair and square. They claim that they're just part of their collection because they like collecting this sort of artwork. The Cambodian government's like, not so fast. These things were looted. These things were stolen. And also, they contain the souls of our dead ancestors. So we want them back. Uh, so that's kind of where things stand at the moment. Again, I left a lot of stuff out. But like I said, it takes a couple of turns. This is the kind of like... I feel like every so often we get a story like this where someone on a board of an opera company or some arts organization, because they have so much money and influence, um, they get involved in something absolutely wild like this. And not to sound too much like a raging leftist here, but like this is why we should be trying to, as far as we can, move away from having rich people control and pay for our art form uh, <sighs> because, oh, man, this is <laughs> this is uh this is something else I, I this was not a a story i expected to see with all its twists and turns and i'm sure um there will be some sort of outcry and if indeed these works are stolen and honestly even if they weren't technically stolen they should probably be sent back anyway um i would hope they do the right thing and send it back uh before they uh get the met dragged down with them in this whole kerfuffle because well according to story. an anonymous yeah according to an anonymous source the family has no intention of returning these artifacts like they're not great they're not talking yeah well yeah that's the i i repeat myself the rich people <laughs> they're my cambodian tchotchkes <laughs> <laughs> i mean that sounds a little bit like a, another well at least fake wealthy person who has said some documents are his and he gets to keep them that's Ooh, all topical <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who you could be talking about. Apparently something's know. in the water. Uh, speaking of, you know, really just, you know, taking stock of your institution and making sure uh, that uh, that everything's kind of above board. 
Uh, I want to talk a little bit about this Cleveland story. Obviously, this is Oy. not this is not an opera company. This is a, a symphony, but this is a rough one, folks. Just uh, the fact that you know, first of all, that she was denied um, you know healthcare anyway is is bad enough. But then to like go through the books that Cleveland uh, uh, had on uh, on this kind of surgery, referring to it as, you know, uh, as I said, my first reaction when I read the quote, um, uh, excluding any treatment leading to our connection with transsexual surgery. First uh. of all, you can tell how old that is because of the use of the word transsexual, which is, uh, if you are not aware, um, please Gosh. try to amend your language to not use that term anymore. Uh, transgender is the uh, preferred term at the moment. Um, and uh, the fact is that this is an clearly, obviously, an old rule on the books. I don't want to uh, accuse the Cleveland Orchestra of being um, uh, knowingly and nefarious nefariously anti-trans at this point in time. Certainly they were at some point in time. Um, but um, this is a good opportunity for all you opera companies, all you music organizations, any, anywhere where you have a payroll, really, to look through your old policies and find stuff like this that is still absolutely on the books in a lot of places and start shopping it out. This is this is something that should have been seen years ago and been like, that's going to be really bad for us uh, once that comes in and hurts one of our orchestra members. We need to get rid of it now. And they didn't. Well, and this is one of the things that adds insult to the injury. So so REM basically has like been an incredible employee for them, redone their entire website, like to totally transformed, uh, you know, that that portion of Cleveland Orchestra's organization. They she was initially approved for the surgery. They had a date set for the surgery that was like in July. But on July mm -hmm. 1st, they moved insurance companies. So the first insurance company was like, yes, all systems go. The second insurance company is the one that said it wasn't medically necessary. And that right. denial is what led to this investigation. So can you imagine like yeah. you're on your way to realizing the truest form of yourself and you have a confirmation that it's going to happen and then immediately – it's it's like snatched out from underneath you. It that yeah. that's the part that breaks my heart though. I mean, all of it's abhorrent, but that part just adds like an extra layer of sad for me to know that this person was this close to it. So in this lawsuit, uh Rem is asking for sorry, Rem, yes, Rem is asking for uh covering of the surgery as well as compensatory damages on top of it for pain and suffering. Yeah. It's it, it's rough. It, Go in, everyone who's listening, go in and check your rules now. <laughs> Try to get those fixed because this is something that should have been um, fixed long before it became a problem. And I mean, um, just just to be explicit, like this rule yeah. was added in the 70s, in the 80s uh, to yeah, yeah. be discriminatory. It was Absolutely. added to discriminate against something that they did not know some other that clearly we've learned more about, you know, the transgender community, and it's disgusting that something like this would be in a um, policy, a policy of an arts organization. I get it if you're like, whatever, Florida <laughs> Board of Education, you know, but, you know, Ohio or Cleveland arts organization. Um, yeah, that's that's embarrassing. You should be embarrassed. As I said, as I said uh, at the beginning of the episode, Ohio, you got to get your shit together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're rooting for you, Rem. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. 
on Opera Box Score. All right, good call, bad call. That's how we end our show each and every week, even if George isn't here. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave, let's start with you this week. Uh, yes, it has been scientifically proven. Opera calms down your dogs. Uh, there's a study that was recently done in Queen's University in Belfast, uh, and the study found that mo when they compared the behaviors of dogs when they were played Mozart versus being played audiobooks, the dogs <laughs> calmed down faster when they were played Mozart. So if your pup is a little agitated, play them the nice parts of Cozy, the lyrical parts of Giovanni, and they should settle right down. Speaking as someone who's been conducting a, a separate but related experiment with my dog, uh, don't use uh, Zamstag Auslicht for that. Uh, she does get distressed. Uh, Oliver Camacho. Well, speaking of Mozart operas, I just have to shout out um, the cast of the La Clementa di Tito, which uh, was given in a concert version at Ravinia Festival. I was able to catch... Uh, the final performance right before I took my COVID test and realized I probably should not have been there, but I was masked. Um, and Emily D'Angelo and Matthew Polanzani, the whole cast was great. Um, but Emily D'Angelo, 26 years old, singing Sesto, uh, she brought so much special to that performance. She looked so amazing. And Matthew Polanzani um, brought so much detail to sort of a thankless Mozart role. Um, it's a, you know, it's a big role, but it's not a role you really like, oh, I'm like the Tito of my generation, you know? But he really added something special to that music and them together uh, made it a world-class Clemenza. And a friend of the show, this is on a different topic, friend of the show, Third Eye Theater Ensemble, will be presenting a world premiere um, Han Lash's, it's actually a Midwest premiere, excuse me, Han Lash's Beowulf, which will be stage directed by friend of the show, Rose Freeman. So you all Yay. know about Beowulf. Um, I believe that many people actually in the cast of this show have been uh, guests on Opera Box Court. Uh, <laughs> I should probably figure out all, naming all of them, but that's uh, opening September 2nd uh, here in Chi-Town. Beowulf. Third Eye Theater Company. Check out their website, thirdite.com. I have a good call from George. If you look online right now, there is a clip from the popular game show, Family Feud, uh, <laughs> of uh, an opera singer uh, seducing Steve Harvey with Carmen. Uh, and while I have my very mixed feelings about Steve Harvey, it's hard to deny that he might be one of the most memeable people on the planet. And uh, I expect this to be a meme by the end of the week. So you can get that to, your, uh, to my desk by morning. Uh, I have uh, one quick call before we go. I'd like to do a bad call to myself for being so hard on Ohio this episode. I really should have known better because, you know, I, my parents are both from Ohio. Uh, and uh, but, you know, sometimes, you know, that Ohio State, you know, DNA mixes with that, you know, competitive Bama, uh, you know, DNA. And, you know, it just gets explosive. I get a little mad sometimes. So I just want to apologize to all of our listeners from the great state of Ohio. <laughs> that is it for this week's edition of America's talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell, who can be found at normwaddell.com. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. You can click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit that plus sign. 
Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is me. So why didn't I edit out all my ums? We'll never know. For our guests, Alexander Lobianco and Huang Ro, and your co-host, Ashley Hardgrave, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you double-check that your Chotskys aren't accidentally from a sacred site, and if they are, give them back. We're back with an all-new show next week when Oliver talks to Isabel Leonard and Ryan Speedo Green! Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more disappointment from Cleveland. I'm sorry, Ohio. Join us. <laughs> <laughs>